2015, as we edge closer and closer to the end of this year and move toward 2016. We've now entered what is traditionally known as the dark time of the year as daylight decreases and nighttime increases, culminating in the winter solstice on December 21st. So the darkness around us is literally increasing, but symbolically in terms of the geopolitical, ecological, and economic landscapes. The darkness has never been so thick and so impenetrable as it is at this moment. Now, to their credit, most Lifeboat Hour listeners have a high tolerance for talking about darkness, and generally, our regular listeners tune into the show every week because we're providing light and lifeboats for navigating these dark and turbulent times. Both my guests today and I have been students of the immortal Carl Jung, who was a student of Sigmund Freud, and who parted company with his mentor because Jung was much more intrigued by consciousness and the psycho-spiritual dimension of humanity, which Freud was not comfortable exploring. And one of the most profound concepts of the human psyche that Jung gave us was the notion of the human shadow. Both Jung and Freud, of course, studied the unconscious all their lives, but Jung wrote very specifically about characteristics of ourselves that we refuse to look at and therefore disown and insist are not part of who we are. The question is, what do we do with these disowned parts? Well, Jung said that we send them into the unconscious and they become our shadow and that eventually the shadow always comes back to bite us. And the poet Robert Bly writes that the shadow is like a very long bag that we carry behind us into which we stuff these disowned parts. And throughout our lives, if we don't deal with the long bag, it just becomes longer and heavier and more burdensome and almost always erupts in some aspect of our lives, not just once, but perhaps many times. And just as every individual has a shadow, a large group of individuals in a community or a region or a nation develop a collective shadow that influences their behavior with each other and with the rest of the world. Now, today on this show, I'm delighted to have with us a man who is not only a dear friend and colleague, but a man who I believe is a renowned sage on the topic of the shadow and its healing and transformation. And to many of you, he's no stranger. That man is Andrew Harvey, and several months ago, he asked me to consider writing a book on the human shadow and the global crisis, and I was so inspired after that conversation that I began immediately to write what has become my just-released book, Dark Gold, The Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. Now, I could have written a tome, but I wanted to produce a readable, simple, short book uh, that everybody could, you know, wrap their minds around. And so um, this book is an extensive, brief but extensive toolbox of exercises and practices for healing the personal and collective shadow. So before I introduce Andrew, I want to remind you that he is a graduate of Oxford University, where he later taught, as well as having taught at Cornell and Hobart and Smith 
William Smith Colleges. He's written some 30 books. He's a scholar of the mystical Sufi poet Rumi, and he's the founder of the Institute for Sacred Activism, which is a unique synthesis of activism and spirituality. And he's just returned from spending several weeks in India, where he was born, and I suspect that today he'll be telling us a little bit about his efforts to help the flood-ravaged people of Kashmir, which he talked about at length on this show last year. So without any further delay... I welcome you, Andrew Harvey, to the Lifeboat Hour. Oh, thank you so much, Carolyn. And I just want to say to everybody listening that what Carolyn has managed to produce in dark gold is truly dark gold. It is a magisterial, extremely clear, very profound, and yet very accessible exploration of the shadow. And I can't think of anything more important than a book like that at this moment, because our spiritual movement and our world movement of trying to restore some kind of sacred order in the middle of all of this chaos is notoriously unable to deal with its own shadow and with the shadow of the world. So if we are to have any hope of surviving this crisis, let alone thriving in this crisis, we are going to have to undergo as a mass of beings, an immense conscious shadow work on the collective shadow of humanity, on the tremendous shadow this extreme crisis is causing, on the shadows that have fermented in our sex denial and our body hatred and our suppression of the feminine. We're going to have to deal with this on a really humbling mass mega level. And a book like this is a absolutely amazingly real and profound and precise and helpful contribution to what is the most important kind of work on the planet at this moment. So I do want to say that and to honor Carolyn and her amazingly brave journey and her continuing remorselessly intense concentration on the most serious subjects and her ability to deal with those serious subjects with such tough, clean, clear, helpful grace. So thank you, Carolyn. Well, thank you for those lovely words, Andrew. And you know, uh, we're going to be talking about dark gold a bit more today, but I was noticing, um, <laughs> I can't help but notice the date today, Sunday, November 22. Yeah. Uh, it was 52 years ago today that John F. Kennedy was assassinated, and this tragedy has become one of the most enormous skeletons in the collective American shadow, and I, I just needed to name that before moving on. Do you have any comments about that? Well, I am absolutely certain that we do not know the full extent of who was involved in that. I think it's very likely that Kennedy was killed by members of his own government in alignment with the CIA and with the mafia. That There were a lot of people who wanted Kennedy out of it because Kennedy was about to pull the plug on Vietnam. And I think that this is one of the biggest stains of our history and I think that ever since then, there have just been explosions of shadow revealing the hollowness and craziness of the American empire. We're living in constant explosions of shadow, including now Trump exploding his shadow and getting away with it in a way that's truly terrifying in its ignorance and stupidity. This is astounding, this collapse of this culture. 
Yes, it is. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit now about the actual gold, you know, the title yes. Dark Gold, the Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. Yes. It was Jung who said that it may be that 80% of the human shadow is pure gold. And yes. we may wonder why he said that and wonder how these disowned parts of our collective and personal psyche can be golden. Well, what Jung went on to say is that if we're willing to examine and explore these aspects of our shadow, it's like going into a very dark gold mine and digging deep into the ground and mining the gold that's there, which appears to be nothing more than dirt or rock, but we have to mine it. And dark gold was written to help the reader mine the dark energies of the psyche. And I know you have a great deal to say about this, Andrew. Well, I do, because God knows I've had to confront in myself and in the world and in the powers that lie behind the world, those dark energies. You've got to be able to face the depths of human depravity and craziness and evil in a culture that is now a very lethal death machine to itself and to nature. That's been a huge journey of the heart, but what it has given me is three things. The first is a much deeper compassion for everyone trapped in such an immense struggle, such an immense shattering. Secondly, much more skillful means in understanding where people are and why they're reacting as they are, because so much more attuned to my shadow, the shadow, the shadow of this crisis. And thirdly, a deep beginning of amazement at the richness of instinctual knowledge that's hidden in the suppressed parts of myself, in the unacknowledged shadows of the culture, awareness that has to be made conscious for us to be able to survive as a race, awareness of the depth of our dissociation from the sacred, the depth of our hallucinatory inability to connect, our isolation, our narcissism, our craziness, our addiction to gizmos, our phenomenal apathy in the face of gathering apocalyptic disaster. All of this is massive work, and it's very important because not only does it make you clearer and more effective in the real world, it makes you so much more embodied, generous, compassionate, skillful, and fed by sources of energy and joy that you were suppressing so able to bask in energies which have been purified and clarified and fill you with their grace and their power. That's the great work of the shadow. It's impossible to really embody the divine without going through the necessary crucifixion that the shadow brings. You cannot go from humanity to divine humanity except going through the door of the shadow because that's where all of the illumination, all of the humbling, all of the shattering of the pretensions of the false self happen. The shadow is sacred and reveals to you your own authentic humanity and your own authentic divinity. And that's the beginning of the great birth. That's the tremendous, tremendous gift of the shadow. And it remains its great gift because there's never a time when you stop doing shadow work because the shadows get subtler and weirder and wilder and greater the deeper the birth of the light so you need to get 
with this shadow work for the rest of the journey. That's what evolution depends on. Well, as you were speaking, uh, it just occurred to me a question that uh, just popped into my head is, how do you encourage people to begin this work of healing the shadow? You know, this is this is really hard work, and it's not for the faint of hearted. Uh, how do we encourage people to begin? I think there are two ways. One is to really ask people to be honest about their lives and face the mistakes and the losses and the lonelinesses and the frustrations that they are actually feeling and the despair that they must be feeling at the world to try and calm down, sober up and look at what's really happening and realize that a great deal of what they call their normal reality is actually triggered by secret terror and panic and an exploding crisis. So you invite them to become honest. And secondly, you really do lay out the fullness of the true path, which involves an acceptance of the depth of the need for shadow work, an acceptance of the rigor that's required to truly birth yourself in a much freer, much holier, much more embodied way. So you encourage people with the goal of what shadow work can take you to, the embodiment of the divine in your heart, mind, soul, and body, because only through sinking into the depths of the shadow and accepting it and making it conscious through grace will you ever be able to unite the dark and the light within you like God unites the dark and the light within the one. And that's the only way the birth can take place. This is why true mystical knowledge is so important for the movement as a whole because it's only having a goal of a new kind of humanity that will give people the guts to go through the process leading to such an incredible possibility. That's how I see it. Yes, and, you know, it takes tremendous courage, and I also think it takes support, uh, that we need yes. to reach out to others who are doing similar work and have an Absolutely. understanding of why this is so important. I think really what we need is shadow networks of grace that people really make the commitment to do serious, tender, loving, compassionate shadow work with their friends in networks of grace on their own shadows, on the shadows of crisis is pouring down on us, on the shadows of this decaying culture so that people can become more sober, more awake, more loving, more compassionate, and more dedicated to service in a realistic way. That's the only way forward, as I see it. What about you, Carolyn? Well, I totally agree. And um, as I work with folks around the country, I've been doing a lot of grief weekends recently. I'll be doing one in Rowe, Massachusetts next weekend, the 27th through the 29th, right after Thanksgiving. And as I talk with people in, in life coaching, um, you know, I see this this real desire to do the grief work. And also, as people do that, then they begin to touch into the shadow. And yes. it's really important to have... Uh, soulmates and partners who are supportive and on a similar path. It really, really cannot be done in isolation. No, that's so true. I mean, ideally you need an expert guide as I've been able to have because I've really made analysis my priority, inward priority in the last nine years. That was my gift to myself and to my pupils to 
really try and attune myself to my shadow, otherwise I didn't want it spilling over into sacred activism or into my teaching. I just needed to deal with it, need to deal with it. But I think it's so important what you're saying, that we really need in place soon real sacred fellowship and friendship. And sacred friendship is the kind of friendship that can embrace a person in their great light and their great shadow and help them deal with their shadow, which can be, and usually is, monstrous, with great humor and tenderness. It doesn't have to be a drama. It doesn't have to be any kind of judgment. It can be playful and subtle, but you need to really do the work to get to that level of ease with the dark sides of yourself and the dark sides of others so that you can truly negotiate them tenderly and really get beyond them. That's the most amazing skill, isn't it, that's born out of true shadow work. It's a blessing. Yes, it absolutely is. And um, before I proceed in our dialogue, Andrew, I'd like to let our listeners know about an event that you and I are both involved with that I think is certainly going to shed some light in these dark times, namely a symposium entitled Living Your Passion and Purpose in the Face of Humanity's Greatest Challenge. This is a five-week online symposium in which eight guests that we've previously interviewed, one of them is Andrew, uh, will be speaking to us from their hearts about the global crisis and how they're responding to it emotionally and spiritually. And in these 10 heart-opening sessions, our guests are going to speak, and then we're going to have the opportunity to engage in informed inquiry together as participants. And we're hoping that each guest we will have interviewed will also be able to live or to to be live with us and to respond to questions and comments. Um, People can register at my website, which is carolynbaker.net. If you register before December 15th, you'll be able to pay the early bird discount price of $75, and after December 15th, the price will be $95. Now, recently, the National Geographic TV channel had a special with Bill Nye talking about climate grief, a show very well done in my opinion, Uh, but of course there were no tools provided for how one might respond to climate grief. However, our symposium, Living Your Passion and Purpose in the Face Face of Humanity's Greatest Challenge, I think is a perfect opportunity to fill in the gaps left by the Bill Nye special. So you absolutely do not want to miss this symposium and uh, and the access that you'll have if you register to all the recordings after the live symposium has aired. Again, you can register by going to my website, carolynbaker.net. And I also want to let our listeners know how they can contact Andrew. His website is andrewharvey.net, and you can learn there all about his work and contact him. So, Andrew, as you know, I deal with a number of different kinds of shadows in dark gold, and one that I deal with in a chapter entitled, Thank You for Your Service, The Enduring Ghosts of War, is the shadow of militarism, empire, and the culture of war, especially now in the wake of the terror attacks in Paris, Lebanon, and elsewhere. Um, the barbarity of ISIS, the saber-rattling of the West. This shadow is one that has been lingering really in the United States throughout our history. And what all of the brilliant minds who are forecasting our future into the next century are telling us 
is that we're probably looking at a future of endless war. So, Andrew, please talk to us about this ongoing scourge of war that is directly connected with the bigger climate threat of, of climate catastrophe and possible near-term human extinction. Well, I think they're all signs of a fundamental psychotic break. I think humanity is mad. And I think that this whole system is designed in its economic structures to create the fundamental war that creates all the other wars, that is this massive inequality between the desperate poor and the incredibly powerful, spoiled, narcissistic, desperately self-absorbed rich. And this is the fundamental madness which all the other madnesses, including the horrors of war, come from because the system itself depends to keep its inequality going on massive arms deals. And these massive arms corporations transcend politics. They feed a death machine because it feeds them and makes them terrifyingly rich and powerful. And this is what we're in. And it's an overwhelmingly dark situation because there's nobody brave enough in the political arena, as we've seen, to dismantle this. This is what Eisenhower warned us of when he warned of the great potential alliance between government and big business and media. It's happened. We're in it. It's a bona fide fascist state without the goose-stepping people on the streets, but they may come soon. And it's very scary because the state is totally unable to deal with any of the major problems. It is, in fact, a creation out of terror and panic at those problems, a complete breakdown of inability to deal with the shadow, with the reality, with what's truly, truly happening, with the tremendous horror of potential extinction out of what we've created so this is the situation, it seems to me. Yes, and possible extinction from two different places. Uh, well, probably many places, but the two that occur to me, of course, is is climate change and, and war. I mean, it's very possible for us to just escalate yes. this madness to the point of extincting ourselves through nuclear catastrophe. Um, oh, God, yes. Yeah. I think that's in the psyche. It's probably the preferred option. I think if you look deep down into the psyche created by the apocalypse, there's a hunger for the nuclear extinction solution because it's quick. It doesn't mean lingering in this ghastly collapse. Right. It's a very quick suicide, actually. Yes. I think that that's part of what's fueling fundamentalist lunacy, too. The fundamentalist lunacy that that calls for the second coming. People are just exhausted at being on the earth in such a dreadful situation, so they're calling for all kinds of suicidal solutions. Yeah, and escapes, like yeah. uh, going, you know, there's, there's, there's all this talk now. It's very much in the news of, you know, we're going to try to make Mars habitable, you know. Yes, habitable, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yes. We can trash this planet and then go there, you know. We're not going to get there in time, and 
we'll never make Mars habitable. This is a complete fantasy. Our technology is nowhere near sophisticated enough. We're spending billions on these idiotic fantasies when people are starving in horrible, horrible circumstances. And there is so much devastation on the planet and Syrian refugees with nowhere to go because Europe is closing its doors in hysteria. I mean, my God, this is a appalling cesspit of the world. It absolutely is. And, you know, um, I want to talk a little bit about activism and the shadow. Since yes. we all have a personal shadow and none of us escapes the shadow, whether we like it or not, um, as activists, we have a shadow. So what do you know about the ways in which the shadow manifests among activists? Well, I think I'd like to begin by saying I think mystics have a shadow too so yes indeed mystics have the shadow of being addicted to transcendence addicted to mystical experience addicted to this rapture they feel the ecstasy so they become hooked on the drug of sensation and drop the body drop relationship with the world drop any desire to bring the truth of what they're discovering into the real world they just want to eat the sugar in the private room and this is so sick and narcissistic Activists have a comparable problem because their nobility of spirit and their deep, deep commitment to justice can morph if it's not watched into deep self-righteousness and profound addiction to blaming others and deep denunciation of others and savage anger and exhaustion and burnout. And they're all connected. They're all connected through that unhealed shadow of activism, which is that burning self-righteousness, which masquerades as a deep, deep desire to serve all beings, but which is, in fact, a profound narcissism, which needs to be uprooted if authentic, selfless activism, true, sacred activism is to be born. But the good news is that if you bring together the healed mystic with the healed activist, the being who's looked at the shadow of the mystic and worked on it through a commitment to selfless activism and truly worked on the shadow of the activist with the mystic faith and the truth and peace, then you have a marriage taking place inside through the double shadow work of working on the mystic shadow and the activist shadow, which really in the end prepares a new kind of human being. That's what is really happening in the depths of sacred activism. And that's what's happening through the alchemy of the shadow. It's the blessing of the shadow. Yes, it absolutely is. And one of the things I'm discovering, and, and I would guess you are as well, is uh, you talk about the power of heartbreak in, in your book on sacred activism, yes. which I found leads us to grief work, which then leads us to looking deeply and compassionately at the shadow. What, what's your experience been with this? I think they're intimately connected, as you say, because once you open and really allow yourself to feel what you are actually unconsciously feeling all the time, which is deep, deep, savage heartbreak at what's happening to the animals, what's happening to the environment, what's happening to the poor, what's happening to the psyches of people in a commercial inferno. All the great griefs will crowd in upon you and demand expression. You need to really plunge into grief work with others, because to bear this tremendous 
lonely, savage pain alone is too killing. You have to share it with others, and you'll find that others are going through it too because of the enormous intensity of this crisis. And that is an amazing opening to really looking at what keeps the crisis going, what paralysis, what apathy, what inability to feel, what deep, deep narcissism keeps the crisis going in oneself and in the world around, and that's the gateway into that kind of grueling but truly redemptive shadow work that we're talking about that can lead us all to much deeper humanity and compassion and skillful interaction with others and a much more profound kind of activism because grounded in unconditional self-knowledge and and deep compassion for all beings and profound continual shadow work. Well, I know one of the places on the planet that has broken your heart is the nation of Kashmir. And the last time you were on this show, you were talking about the floods there and helping the folks there. So tell us what's been happening with that situation. Well, we raised 30000 That was so great because it's helped two and a half families, really three families, buy land and begin building houses. So they've been really set on their way, which is a source of great joy to me. And I'm still keeping open, of course, if anybody would like to contribute to Sacred Kashmir. But I'm already very thrilled that we managed to raise that money, and I thank everybody who really participated, because it's amazing how far $30,000 can go in that kind of situation. I just wanted to prove that something real could be done by a group of ordinary people like ourselves, and it really was done. And the families are incredibly grateful, as you can imagine. So what's happening with the flooding over there now? Are those folks being able to rebuild, or do they keep getting well, deluged? Well, somehow it's very hard because, the, quite honestly, the Indian government is being hopeless and not paying out anything, and when it does pay out, it pays out ludicrously small amounts of money, so people aren't being really helped at all. And the Indian government made it impossible for, for foreign agencies to help, so they didn't need them. So that means that the Kashmiris are abandoned. What they are is very strong and very, very self-sufficient. So there's a lot of hard, grueling work going on to restore family finances after the catastrophe, and people are living in the homes of their relatives and making do in a very generous, hospitable way like they do. That's their way over the centuries. It's a very strong culture. But my God, what a catastrophe. It continues to be a catastrophe. Yeah, it does indeed. So if people want to still do um, do some contributing and, and offer yes. some help, they can uh, contact exactly. you. At... Activism Kashmir, absolutely. Okay. Uh, probably best to go to your website, andrewharvey.net, and they can do, donate there? Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Well, I want to get back to Dark Gold for a moment. Uh, Please. The last chapter is entitled, Redemption, Taking Back Projections, Transforming the Shadow. Would you talk to us a bit about projections and why we project, the consequences of projecting, why we need to take them back, and and how we actually do that? Well, that is the most difficult of all psychological processes. Let's Mm -hmm. take ISIS. Let's take this tremendously virulent, horrific 
form of terrorism that's coming out in ISIS. The great temptation for everybody is to separate completely and demonize ISIS. They make it very easy to do so because they're behaving in the most extremely horrific ways that any group we know of has behaved. I mean, burning a naked Jordanian pilot in a cage by pouring napalm over him and lighting it and petrol over him and lighting it is about as obscene. And then filming it for the world is about as far as one's gone so far. That's all true, but what would the real shadow work involved with dealing with ISIS entail? It would entail three things. It would entail looking at the way in which a series of catastrophic imperial fantasies led to the creation of ISIS, the way in which we barged into the Middle East, tried to do exactly what we wanted for our own interests, for oil interests, for power interests, failed catastrophically and created immense humiliation and horror among the Middle Eastern peoples that has led to this very, very ferocious cancer. But it's a cancer of our making. It's not just the Islamic world that has made this. It's our rape of the Islamic world that has also contributed to this. That's the first thing. The second thing would be to really look at the way in which the Americans have fought the Iraqi and Afghanistan wars, the horror that they've inflicted, the bombs and the drones and the horrific collateral damage. What makes... ISIS terrorism and that not terrorism. So that gives us to the third, which is the really difficult, horrible work, and that is to take back the projection of our own unacknowledged demonic death machine that is raping everything, utilizing everything, exploiting everything, dominating everything, killing everything on a terrorist level that makes ISIS look like Marie Antoinette naked in the garden taking a cucumber sandwich, <laughs> that we are just unable to deal with that shadow, so they're the most convenient thing for us. They've turned out to be the most easily demonizable ones. And this is the kind of shadow work that would change everything if only we could do it, because it would really wake all of us up to what the real terrorism is, which is the terrorism of the multinational corporations in link with the political establishment and the media and the surveillance state. And that is hurtling the world towards destruction. That is absolutely brilliant, Andrew, as you assess the geopolitical landscape. And then I want to take us back into the United States and, once again, our own shadow of racism, which is just bursting everywhere. And we have these presidential candidates who are seemingly drawing it out of people and, and making things that were, you know, making statements that a few years ago were horrific and now are just acceptable. Um, what, what do you have to say about the shadow of racism in the United States? I don't know whether there are words savage and sad enough to really convey what I feel about the racism in the United States. I think the biggest shock that I've had as a person who has lived now since I was in my late 20s, that means almost 35 years in the United States, has been coming to 
absolutely heartbroken recognition that this culture is still savagely, irredeemably racist in all kinds of very dark ways, and that it's totally incapable of dealing with it because the wound is so deep and it goes to the absolute core of the fiction of Americans' identity. If they claim to represent liberty and democracy in the world, how the fuck can they explain that the whole of their initial 150 years of power was based on slavery? And that is a wound that we have not even begun to recover from or take back projections from. No. Which means that the African-Americans suffer in double ways, not only the injustice and the horror that's been there from the beginning, morphing into all kinds of other ways of injustice and horror, like keeping them really penned into projects and half of them in jail and treating them like dogs and not educating them and hoping that they'll kill each other in gangs. I mean, this is awful, what's going on here in Chicago, my God, and in all the American cities. It's a a hidden Gaza, really. It absolutely is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, I'm wondering how we as communities or regions of the world can take back our projections and redeem the collective shadow. Um, please, Please say more about that, if you would. Well, I think it has to begin in discussions like this, doesn't it? It has to begin with mm-hmm. people just sitting down with each other and really, truly getting through the propagandic bullshit about everything and trying to tell the truth about what they really feel, about what they truly see. And those are the discussions that are not happening. We have to model them and initiate them and spread them. And then, great work can be done, but it really has to start there, doesn't it? It has to start with people hearing other people tell their truth at this very exposing level. Because that's so. the real truth of shadow work, isn't it? Yeah, these are these are difficult conversations to have. Um, yes. You know, but as you were saying before, it's, um, you know, <laughs> you know, my friend Francis Willard talks about inviting people over and just saying, um, I want to talk tonight about sorrow, you know, just four or five close friends. I want to talk about sorrow. And then that could lead to, I want to talk about the shadow. Um, you know, just having these little groups, uh, like you have Networks of Grace, I believe, in the Institute for Sacred Activism. Yes. Little groups of people that you can talk with um, in person or online or by Skype, um, getting together on a regular basis and having these difficult conversations. I, I think it's crucial for our sanity. And I'm amazed at how few people are doing it. That It's almost impossible to have a serious conversation about the potential extinction of the world. That's the biggest shadow of all in our culture, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I, I, I guess for me, I, I have a difficult time starting with extinction. Uh, it's certainly, uh, as I talk about oh, in Dark course, Gold, yeah. the ultimate, the ultimate shadow, <laughs> and yeah. we're living in the shadow of extinction. Um, but to begin to go down that road toward understanding how serious that is, 
by talking about our sorrow, by talking about, you know, beginning to touch into the shadow. And then we can yes. certainly get into, you know, deeper levels of severity. But, you know, many people you. listening to this show have already gone there. And Absolutely. Uh, I talk with them all the time. Now, there's another there's another side to this. Um, which we also need to look at, and that is the whole issue of joy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, not happiness, because no. this culture is all about chasing happiness. But very um, few people yeah. in this culture understand joy. And you and I are going to be working soon on a book called Radical Joy in the Age of Despair. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about joy. Well, if you really wake up to reality, you experience that reality is a manifestation of divine consciousness, and the essence of divine consciousness is bliss, is ananda, is the great joy. That's what's creating everything. And that's the final mystical experience, is the great joy of the great dancer, the great ecstasy. So... Joy is the fundamental truth of reality, and this is an unanimous testimony by all the greatest mystics. The mystic search ends in union with the beloved, and the reward of that union is tremendous joy. So knowing that, it's extremely important to make that the secret goal of your life, to experience the bliss essence of reality in all the different joys that reality also radiates, the joys of nature, the joys of art, the joys of sacred friendship, the joys of deep, deep ecstatic human sexual relationship, the joys of loving animals, the joys of deeply honoring other people's missions and works in the world. All these great joys, these tremendous joys are all rays of the great sun of bliss that is the archetypal primordial love force power of the universe the evolutionary power so the commitment to live in joy is one that aligns you to the truth of the universe but also one that aligns you to being endlessly refueled by the love force that's the evolutionary power of the universe that is that pure, wild, holy joy expressing itself in ever deeper and richer combinations and fulfillments and fusions and births of new light matter, new ways of experiencing the union of matter and light, all of that will become available to you through joy. And the actual training for joy is probably the most important kind of training. And probably it's one thing that you won't feel as important as it. you need to feel it until you've actually done very deep shadow work because deep shadow work will break your illusions about pleasure and fantasies about fun because it will show you the neurotic addictions that underlie the search for those things and so it will drive you to really really want to experience the complete divine joy in your life and live it in your life and that is such a blessing because if you can allow yourself to experience that, then you become both totally focused and really deeply peaceful in the middle of this crisis and keep working, keep loving, keep 
hoping against hope that lunacy will dissolve in truth. And if it doesn't, keep gambling away your life for beauty anyway. Yeah, I don't want to get hung up on words, but, uh, you know, some people listening to this show and even I sometimes have a difficult time with the word hope because of the way yes. in our culture it is used, you know, so that we talk about hopium yes. <laughs> uh, as this drug of, well, I hope this gets better or hope somebody does something about it. Um, you know, I I think that you're probably speaking of hope in a different way from that. Oh, yes. Uh, you're I'm speaking of longing, hoping. it sounds like, really longing for something passionately. Yes, I think that the hope I'm talking about is mystical hope. I mean, you can mm-hmm. be in a concentration camp and live in that kind of hope because right. that hope is founded in the knowledge of the eternal that this terrible situation you are in cannot destroy. And that's the final hope that in each one of us there is a spark of divine consciousness which can become conscious which can live calmly serenely strength with great strength and purpose even in the middle of total catastrophe that's a hope beyond hope you see well, I think that we have an actual tangible example of that in the writings of Viktor Frankl who did experience joy in, in the middle of Auschwitz and you know knew that his relatives and wife and family members were getting murdered and you know we we just have such a difficult time in this culture distinguishing between happiness and joy and joy is something for which there's actually a price to be paid if we really want to experience joy we're going to have to go into these dark places and in fact by going into the shadow and doing that work our joy is so much more deeply enhanced yes. than if we just keep chasing for happiness, don't you think? Oh my God, yes. Chasing for happiness is just participating in an endless circus of illusion. You're never going to find happiness in any real sense until you've discovered how to live in joy, and happiness will be the radiation of that discovery, but not the core, which will be living in real presence, living in the presence of the divine inside you. Well, I want to ask you, as we come down toward the end of our show, uh, what projects you're engaged in now? What uh, what do you see for 2016 as far as your work is concerned? Um, I know you're, you and I are going to be doing a couple of things together, but um, oh, yes. what's, what's on the horizon for you? Well, What I really want to do in the next bit is to finish some books that I have nearly finished. I nearly finished a handbook for sacred activists, Hope in Action, Hope in this very profound divine sense that I've been talking about. And I want to produce a book of Kabir recreations that I've finished, and I want to really start imagining my new work, because I feel something is very strongly being born in my work at the moment, but I haven't yet formulated it, so it's exciting to wait for that formulation. I'm reviving the Institute next year, so I'm looking forward to really getting down to training and sacred activists again. That fills me with excitement, because the years that it wasn't functioning were years in which there was so much denial that it wouldn't have been useful, but now... I feel people are really beginning to wake up in ways that I can be of help to them, and that fills me with joy. So 
there's a lot on the horizon and a lot of joyful energy flowing towards it. And uh, you're working on a particular project right now that's about to come out. It's a book on Seymour. Can you briefly tell us about Seymour and who he is? (laughs) Well, Seymour is a very great friend of mine. Seymour Bernstein is an 88-year-old composer and writer and concert pianist and teacher of the piano. He gave up the concert stage about 30 years ago and became an amazing teacher of others, pouring out his gifts to others, and he met Ethan Hawke at a dinner party that I was at, and they fell spiritually in love, and after playing for Ethan and I once, he, I, I asked Ethan, look, please make a documentary about this man, and to cut a long story short, the documentary was made, it's called Seymour, an introduction, it's gone global, And I've just finished a book of really very exciting and pungent and moving conversations with Seymour, which came out of a week I spent with him in his main house and talking about everything, God, the world, but mostly deeply about the way in which deep musical training, deep training in music, deep opening to the mystery of music can help you play life itself more beautifully and it was a very that's the title of the book so the corrections have gone to print so i'm very excited today this is the day in which it's been born so thank you for asking oh my goodness well congratulations on this very special day (laughs) thank you darling and i want to just remind folks of my book dark gold the Human Shadow and the Global Crisis. Um, it is now available at the website of Tayen Lane, T-A-Y-E-N-L-A-N-E dot com, Lane dot com. Uh, soon to be on Amazon and certainly orderable through your local bookstore. Um, discover the joys, the joy that can come from shadow work. And, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for being on the Lifeboat Hour today and so much for your work and your love and support in my world and the world. Thank you, darling. Thank you. Back to you, kid. Thank you so much. Oh, you bet. Well, thank you all listeners for joining us again uh, here on the Lifeboat Hour, and we invite you back next week for more truth, more wisdom, more light and inspiration. We'll see you then. That the days are loaded Everybody rolls With their fingers crossed Everybody knows The war is over Everybody knows The good guys lost Everybody knows The fight was fixed The poor stay poor The rich get rich That's how it goes Everybody knows Everybody knows that the boat is leaking